I want to uh, share with you this morning a message that I believe will be a great encouragement. Um, last week I ministered on Each One Reach One, which is one of our major initiatives for 2017 and had some incredible feedback from that message. I talked about how to reach out to other people with the good news of Jesus in a way that is appropriate to your gifting and to your personality. I had so many people come back and say, thank you so much. You've, you've set me free. You've liberated me. And that's what the word does. Amen. The truth will set you free. It'll make you free. And so if you missed that message last weekend, it's online. Have a watch of it. You can download the podcast, listen to it on your way to work or wherever this week and make sure you don't miss the message. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, if you would please. That's our text for this week, Isaiah chapter 1. You can find the message notes online. They're on the Bayside Church app. If you haven't downloaded that, go into the App Store and type in Bayside Church Melbourne and you can download the app. The app is really, really good. Very easy, very accessible, and, uh, and that'll open up lots of resources for you. Um, they're also online, of course, or you can take your own notes if you'd like to. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to read the first 19 verses. It starts in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Stopping there for a moment and putting this in context, he mentions four kings and these were the four kings who reigned through Isaiah's life and prophetic ministry. And so we're looking at 740 BC to 681 BC. It's a 79-year period and this vision not just chapter 1, but the whole vision that is recorded uh, in the book that we know by the prophet's name, Isaiah, um, were prophecies particularly to Judah and Jerusalem during that time period. Now, the reason I mention that is that what we're reading here is history that is 2,700 years old. And it's important that we bear that in mind because as we read these next few verses, there's going to be some words and some concepts that are completely foreign to us. And the reason is because they're ancient. Uh, but through this message, you'll see some truth just beautifully come to life and to blossom, which I know will bless and encourage and strengthen your faith. So with that in mind, let's read the rest of this text. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corrupters. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should, we, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or, <coughs> excuse me, or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now, this next verse, verse 8, gives three analogies of this desolation. Analogy number one, so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. Number two, 
as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, and number three, as a besieged city. Now, that second analogy, that second metaphor, I love. There's something about that that really resonated with me as I read it, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. And I'm going to make this one of my little um, goals for the next week or two is to actually take this metaphor and to weave it into my everyday conversation. And, and I'd like to encourage you to do the same. It's talking about desolation. So wherever you, you like my, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. My garden at the moment, all right, it's winter. Your garden might be like this. In the winter, my garden is as desolate as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. You see? It's quite profound. Some of you are looking at me like I've lost the plot. That happened a number of years ago, just so you know. Okay. Um, at, at the sad news, her face was as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. So you see the potential here. All right. So uh, weave that into your language and then you can put up on Facebook how it was. Let us move on. Verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings. Before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then these words that many of us know so well. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat from the good of the land. I've called this message today in a, a, a kind of a, 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 it's a request from God or an invitation from God. So I put it in inverted commas. Let us talk together, God. Let's, oh, sorry, let's talk about this, God. God is giving us an invitation here. Come now, let us reason together. Let's sit down and talk this through. It's a beautiful invitation, isn't it? As a parent, and those of you who are parents, when your kids muck up in some way when their behavior is, is lacking uh, or is just plain bad like the people of Judah and Jerusalem here. God's kids had gone astray and their behavior was atrocious. And yet like a good parent, like we would do uh, to our kids, we say, look, come on, let's sit down and talk this through. Let's talk about this. This can't continue this way. Things have got to change. We're going to talk about this. And God is speaking here as a parent, notice in one of those verses, God is saying to his 
people. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So he's talking like a father. His kids have gone astray. And as I was preparing this, uh, this verse was just quickened to my spirit uh, to, to share with you just very quickly. Those of you who are parents and your kids have gone astray, they've gone off the rails. Maybe, maybe they've, they've walked away from you or maybe they've walked away from the Lord. And, and you're deeply grieved by that and rightly so. But the encouragement today is God is the perfect parent, but his kids still sometimes go astray. And so the encouragement that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to give you is to stop beating yourself up. Stop second-guessing yourself and looking back over regret. Yes, your parenting was as imperfect as mine and everybody else's, but you did your best. You raised your kids up the best way you knew how. You cared for them, protected them, nourished them. And for whatever reason they've gone astray at this particular point in time, you need to be able to commit them to the Lord and stop beating yourself up as a parent because God's kids go astray as well. We see a couple of things here that I want to deal with just very quickly. First of all, we see the problem and then we see, secondly, the solution. And we're going to spend a few minutes on each of those right now and then we're going to break bread together. And so the problem, first of all, in verses 1 to 15, God's children had rebelled against him. They were leading sinful lives that lacked justice, particularly toward the poor and the oppressed. But they were still worshipping God like nothing was wrong. In other words, they were living hypocritical lives. Have you ever had anyone say to you, oh, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites? Hypocrisy is one of the major turnoffs for people who may be considering God or Jesus or church, and then they see something, they experience something, and and they only experience hypocrisy when we pretend like we've got it all together, when we're acting all holier than thou, and we, we, you know, people think, oh yeah, they've really got it together. It's only then that they get disappointed because we're pretending like we got it all together, but we haven't got it all together. And when they finally see that we haven't got it all together, they say, oh, hypocrite. So we need to live authentic and transparent lives. And so here we've got a group of people, Judah and Jerusalem, and they're living like the devil through the week. And then they go and gather on the weekend and they lift their hands in worship and, and all of that, and yet, and yet it's, it's hypocrisy. And so God has some really tough words for them. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? You're living like the devil, and then you come and sacrifice. I've had enough of burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and of lambs and of goats. And God is in good company. I'm not keen on those either. Bring no more futile sacrifices. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. So when we gather here on a weekend, we gather as authentic, transparent men and women. We don't come together like we've got it all together. We've had a mixture of stuff during the week, right? Some of it's been great. Some of it's not so great. Yeah, you lost your temper with somebody at work or whatever the case might be. Um, But we're not pretending like we've got it all together when we gather here on a weekend. God says, my soul hates these meetings. God forbid that he would ever say that about one of our meetings at Bayside. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Imagine that just for a moment. You know, we're praying and we're, we're using lots of words because we think because of our more words, God's going to hear us more. And God is in heaven going, la, 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 la. Not listening. La, 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 la. And then God likens his people to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know right there, that's not a great analogy. Can we pick a different analogy, please? No. God says, he says, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were guilty of the same sin as Sodom and Gomorrah, as we read here in this chapter. What is the sin of Sodom? Well, it's to- it tells us in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's the sin of Sodom. That's why it was destroyed. Let's unpack those three words for a moment. Arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Arrogant is the same word translated as pride in the Hebrew Scriptures. Pride goes before a fall, or literally pride goes before destruction. So the, the people of Sodom had become very proud people, and it went before destruction. Not only were they arrogant or proud, they were overfed. That is, they had lots of food in their bellies. They were wealthy people. They had lots of material resources. And yet, they were unconcerned. They were lazy. They had lots of time on their hands. Putting all of those three together, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had lots of resources. They had plenty of time. They had plenty of opportunity to help the poor and the needy, but they didn't. That is the sin of Sodom. And I dare say that is one of the major sins of the Western world and, sadly, one of the major sins of the Western church. Lots of money, lots of resources, lots of opportunity, but unconcerned. That is not a sin that we as a church community are guilty of and ever will be guilty of as long as we're the pastors of it. Unconcerned, arrogant, overfed. That's the problem. They neglected the poor. What's the solution? The solution we find in verses 16 to 19. And it's basically a reversal of the problem. He says here a number of statements God speaks to the people. He says, first of all, cease to do evil. Secondly, learn to do good. And the word learn there in Hebrew is an active word. It means to learn by practicing He says, I want you to start practicing goodness. Goodness by the very nature of it is something that flows from us to other people. And I'm going to practice being a good person, making a difference, impacting the lives of other people. Thirdly, he says, seek justice. That means to be greatly interested in doing justice, to doing what is right and just. Uh, On Bayside News, you'll have seen the justice conference, which is coming up. Uh, in, in, uh, well, later in the year, I think it's October, and uh, that's something that's going on all around the world at the moment, and uh, it's a conference where people come together to learn about justice and how to be effective in doing justice. So I encourage you to book into that, and we're looking for people to volunteer at that. What a wonderful opportunity that is, helping people do justice and learn how to do it. You might want to give a little bit of your time And if that resonates with you, contact the church office about it. 
The fourth thing he says is rebuke the oppressor. Anyone you find that's oppressing other people, they need to be challenged. The NIV puts this differently. It says defend the oppressed. And then it gives us two particular people or types of people in our community that we are to defend. It says defend the fatherless. That's a way of saying defend the orphans and also plead for the widow. In Bible times, of course, these were the most vulnerable of people. And, and in our society today, they are still amongst the most vulnerable. Think about it for a moment. Ch- children, they need parents or at least a parent if you're in a single parent family. If you're a single mom, a single dad, or, or they're a, a, a two-parent household, as good parents, you're looking out for your child. You've got their best interest at heart. You're always wanting to protect them and keep them safe and to make sure that they are treated kindly and protected from any predator or oppressor. But what if you don't have a parent or parents around to look after you? You're an orphan and you are amongst the most vulnerable of people. God is saying to his people, I want you to look out for people like that. Sad thing is, is some people who say they're God's people have not looked out for people like that. That's why we got a royal commission into child sexual abuse in churches and church-run um, institutions. been reading in the news recently about the orphans that were brought out from the UK uh, several decades ago, uh, brought to Australia under the guise of those being protected, and many of them were, but some of them were not. Some of them were sexually abused, violently abused, used and mistreated. That is just plain wrong. And the church of Jesus is to be looking out for the oppressed, looking out for the orphan, looking out for the widow. In Bible days, if a, if a woman lost her husband, she had no other means of support. If she had no family to support her, often her only other option was to turn to prostitution, selling herself just to be able to survive. And the leaders of Jew- Jerusalem and Judah, uh, the religious leaders were not looking out for people like that. They had all the food, all the resources, all the money, and yet they weren't caring for the poor and the oppressed. It's a very big part of who we are and what we do as a church community is looking out for the orphans and the widows and those who suffer oppression in this world, and it's very important that we do. Now, I'd love it if we could help all of them. I'd love it if we could help every orphan in Africa. How good would that be? But we can't, but we can help eight. And sometimes because people can't meet all the need, they don't meet any need. But we're not going to be guilty of that. We haven't been and we never will. We can help eight. We can make a difference to them. Same here locally. Over the last 10 years with Matt's Place in Cheltenham and then after that with Chelsea, we have served in excess of 100,000 hot meals to homeless and disadvantaged people in the Bayside area of Melbourne. I'd love to help every homeless person in Melbourne. I'd like to help every homeless person in Australia, but we can't, but we can make a difference to them because as a church community, we will not be guilty of the sin of Sodom. God has blessed us as a community of believers together that we are able to, with our time and our ability and our gifts and our finance and our prayers to make a difference to those who are oppressed and poor. The refugees, the homeless, the marginalized, the children. My heart breaks when I hear 
of cases of people being arrested over child pornography and the stuff that goes on with those poor little kids. Women and children and, and men as well who are trafficked. Over 30 million people in the world right now that are sold, the vast majority of them, into sex slavery. These things should break our hearts and, and, and they're the things that the church should be known for speaking out about and, and, and for making a difference in. Sometimes our message is hijacked by other things. And so with that background in mind, God invites his people into a conversation. He said, you've got all of this need around you, but you're not doing anything. You've got all this money, all this time, all this opportunity, but you're doing nothing. So he says, come, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. Though your sins are like scarlet. Now, the background to this is fascinating. There was a scarlet dye in the ancient world that was taken uh, from a little insect. In fact, we've got a picture, I believe, that we can put up on the, on the screen for you. Uh, this little insect is called Coccus illicus. It's just a little bug. It lives on uh, oak leaves, on trees in the countries to the east of the Mediterranean. And people in the ancient world would harvest the eggs from this little bug because they contained a very potent scarlet dye. And through process, they would make this dye. Uh, and then they would take cloth and they would double dip it in the dye. So not just once, but twice. And that cloth became then permanently stained scarlet. And so this is a very powerful analogy that the Lord is using here through the prophet Isaiah. He says, though your sins be like scarlet, though, though your sins are double dip dyed and permanent, I'm going to make you white as, as snow. The great theologian Alfred Barnes put, puts it this way. This was a fast, fixed color. Neither dew, nor rain, nor washing, nor long usage would remove it. Hence, it is used to represent the fixedness and permanency of sins in the heart. No human means will wash them out. No effort of man, no external rites, no tears, no sacrifices, no prayers are of themselves sufficient to take these sins away. They are deep, fixed in the heart as the scarlet color was in the web of cloth and an almighty power is needful to remove them. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wood. White in Scripture is always a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of purity today. That's why women often want to wear white dresses at their wedding. It's a symbol of purity as, as they're walking down the aisle. When you get into the book of Revelation, all of the, the people of God, past, present, and future, you see them symbolized by wearing white robes. It's righteousness. It's holiness. It's, it's the, the cleansing and purity that is brought about not by any human act, but by a divine act through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. An almighty power was needed to remove our sins. Our sins were permanent, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has purified and cleansed us from all sin. Sins of omission, 
things we could have done but we didn't, sins of commission, things that we have done but shouldn't. And at this time, as a community, we come together and we remind ourselves through a very simple meal that we refer to as the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, which simply means to give thanks. And we give thanks for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was broken on a crucifix, on a, on, on a cross, that he was crucified for our cleansing and for our forgiveness to make us white. 